The Mountaintop Podcast show notes can be found at www.mountaintoppodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to the newsletter and get a 25-minute call with me for free. Also, you're invited to join the Mountaintop Summit Facebook group. Look forward to seeing you there. Live from the mist-enshrouded mountaintop fortress that is X and Y Communications Headquarters, you're listening to the world-famous Mountaintop Podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. Greetings, gentlemen, all across the Fruited Plain. Welcome to yet another episode of the world-famous Mountaintop Podcast. My name is Scott McKay, at Scott McKay on Twitter, Scott McKay on YouTube, Real Scott McKay on Instagram. You can also find us on the web, as always, at www.mountaintoppodcast.com. Also, the Facebook group, of course, that's Mountaintop Summit. Today, we're going to deviate from the typical norm just a little bit, whatever that means, and we're going to talk about masculinity and femininity all over the world. But I don't have a dating expert for you today or a relationship expert per se. With me today as a guest, I'm kind of thrilled about this because as a lot of you guys know, I'm a world traveler. Today with me is one of the most renowned world travelers there is. His name is Harry Mitsidis, and he's from the UK, and uh, we're going to have a wonderful conversation. Welcome, Harry. Thank you. Welcome. It's great great to be here, and uh, you know, great to talk across the pond, as it were. <laughs> yes. Well, you have been across many ponds. I would say you've been across every pond during your tenure as a world traveler. I want to go ahead and give these guys a bit of a bio on you, which I don't typically do on these shows. Usually we dive right into it. But in your case, I think it's well warranted because what you're most well known for is not going to be the topic of this show, but I think it flavors what we're going to talk about so profoundly that I definitely want to cover it. For those of you who are listening, Harry Mitsidis is – he bristles when people say this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because it's my personal belief – if he isn't the world's most traveled man, he's on the Mount Rushmore and he's in everybody's conversation. I've never, ever seen a conversation about someone being more traveled than anybody else in the world without Harry Mercedes's name being brought up. This guy would make Johnny Cash jealous. He's been everywhere, man. I mean, he's been places you've never heard of. He's been to like every island you can't even picture where it exists, places out in the Indian Ocean that have names like British Overseas Indian Island Territory and crazy crap like this. This guy's been to all of them. And he actually is the head honcho over at a website that I happen to be a member of called Nomad Mania, which is a site for people who love travel and not just laying on the beach or going and visiting London and having your passport stamped once. But guys and gals who are actually really interested in world travel almost to an obsessive degree. It's a great website, and we'll tell you guys more about it later so you can go. But Harry, how many places in the world have you – well, I guess the question to ask is you could probably list the places you haven't been more than the places you have been. Much, much more easily, correct? <laughs> well, well, I haven't been to San Antonio where you live, so that's, I know, ironically. that's one on my list. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. I have been to Texas a number of times, but somehow I missed both Austin and San Antonio, so I feel really guilty about that. Yeah, you just lost um, your entire slate of credibility with this entire listenership. 
No, I'm kidding. Of course. <laughs> no, man, y'all come down. No, man, we'll get you some Tex-Mex and some barbecue. And man, you'll never know cows were so tasty. Actually, you probably have. Well, you know, I, I do remember yeah. the rodeo in Fort Worth. That was one of the highlights uh, of my trips to the States. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Uh, Which is somewhere I've never been, is the rodeo. Oh, well. for, I mean, Fort Worth, I've been there. I've never actually been to the Roundup or the Stampede or the rodeo or whatever they call it. But, yeah, I heard it's fascinating. But, yeah, you have been to certainly every country that the UN recognizes. And I believe to all the UN plus countries, as they call them, you know, Taiwans of the world and um, to just a host of all kinds of different places and different regions within different places, like most of the oblasts of Russia, for example, if not all of them. So I've done them all. Yeah, I've done all the oblasts <laughs> of Russia. I've done all the states in the States, in Argentina, in Brazil, you know, uh, I've been around, but that, you know, the more you travel, the more you realize you still have to see, uh, because you're conscious of how big the world really is. Yes. It's almost like a Socratic notion of knowledge. The older I get and the wiser I get, the more I realize I know nothing. Yeah. I agree with exactly, you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And as somewhat of a world traveler, I mean, a total hack compared to you by any stretch of the imagination. That's one thing that Emily and I have noticed is everywhere you go, it just gives you a thirst to want more. And, you know, you start filling out your little map of everywhere you've been and you feel really proud of yourself for having been to so many places. And you realize that, you know, most of the world has yet to be seen and experienced based on the simple matter of geography. I mean, some countries are huge. Like me, for example, Brazil, I've been to Rio. You know, I've missed most of Brazil. So sure, I've been to Brazil and, at the macro scale, I can check that one off. But man, there would be so many other cool places to see in Brazil. So totally get it. Well, you know, all these all these big countries, but even the small ones, you know, they always have a lot of variation in terms of culture, in terms of geography. And so if you want to really say you know a country, you really need to go around it a lot and see all the different places. I mean, in the States... If you've just been to New York, uh, obviously you haven't experienced the whole country, you know. Uh, so, so there's a lot to see uh, in every country, I would say, and and that's what Nomad Mania tries to highlight. Actually, the fact that you need to do more within every country. Yes, absolutely, and I think the United States is a wonderful example of that. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, and every time we go on a road trip, we see new and exciting things. India is certainly like that. Russia comes to mind. China, most certainly. So, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, you go to Beijing and climb the Great Wall, and you think you've been to China, but, man, you haven't even touched it. Very, very true. <laughs> and that brings us to our topic today. And Harry, you're the right person to address this topic, not only because of you having been all over the world. And by the way, you're not the kind of guy who just sets foot on the tarmac off the airplane and goes, okay, been here. Let's get out of Somalia as fast as possible. You're a guy who spends time. No, places. no, no. That, that would be sacrilege for me. You <laughs> right, know, so. exactly. So you're not only the right guy to talk about this topic of masculinity and femininity all over the world for that reason. But you were also a sociologist, and you were also a proponent of teaching what's called Hofstede's theory. I'd like for you to talk, first of all, about what Hofstede's theory is and how it relates directly to masculinity and femininity on a global scale, because I think that's a wonderful jumping off point for this conversation. All right. All right. Well, you know, Hofstede uh, is a very interesting character. He's, he's still alive. I think he's almost 
90 now. Uh, and he's from the Netherlands. Uh, and he's quite famous for his theory of comparative culture or the dimensions of culture that he came up with. So he did a study back in the late 60s and early 70s going to a big number of countries, about 20 or 25, which is a massive undertaking if you think that he actually did research in all these different places. Um, and he sent questionnaires and did all sorts of research and came up with the theory that culture is composed of five dimensions. Now, I'm not going to tire you with all of them. One of these dimensions is masculinity versus femininity. Now, for him, this is not exactly men and women only. This is not about men and women uh, themselves. It's more about to what extent a culture is cooperative and nurturing and that he associates with feminine, which in itself is interesting. So for him, cultures that are more feminine are those where both men and women uh, have a more nurturing attitude, a more cooperative attitude. He found that across the world, women in general tend to feel the same, no matter where they are. Uh, I'm simplifying, of course, but this is what he found that in general, women are similar. So they tend to be this kind of mother earth kind of figures, nurturing, caring, um, cooperative. Now, remember, he did this in the early 70s. So the world has changed a lot. He found that men differ. So in certain countries or cultures, he found that men are quite similar to women in their attitude to cooperation, to being caring, nurturing, etc. But in other countries or cultures, men were much more um, combative, if you want, or competitive. They were much more about goals, uh, success, competition, uh, trying to, you know, be number one, get results, that kind of thing. And what he ended up with was dimensions on a scale from one to a hundred, if you want, of uh, cultures which he thought are very, very masculine, and then going down to those that he found were very feminine. Now, again, this was done a while ago, and I believe that, you know, culture does change. Uh, our idea of what is masculine or feminine may change. So it's probably if we did it now, it wouldn't be exactly the same. But definitely, it's it's an interesting way of starting to think about masculinity and femininity and what gender roles really mean. I think that's incredibly fascinating. And of course, much of what you just mentioned mirrors what we talk about on this show quite often. I want to focus specifically on the part about women being similar over most parts of the world. In other words, they're nurturing, they're... Well, caring, you know, they generally, I mean, what we think of a mother, right? Let's okay. put it that way. You know, who will care, who will protect, who will cooperate, cooperate, try yes. to build community. You know that, yes. And yet, you said men sometimes take on more of a feminine role in certain cultures. They've been more feminized, as it were. And in other cultures, they are in many ways what we would consider macho. They're yeah all yeah. about the competition, they're combative, they're fighting, they're playing sports against each other. And it sounds as if Hofstede was kind of equating masculinity with these macho features. Well, to a certain extent, you know, obviously it goes much deeper than that. But sure. the idea would be that in masculine societies, the role that a man is expected to play 
is very different to the role of a woman. You know, it's well-defined and very different. So the man is the one who will be the fighter, kind of, and, and you know, the one who will uh, compete. And then the woman is the caring, you know, mother figure. Whereas in more feminine cultures, men and women are more alike and will alternate roles, if you want, uh, and be, be more cooperative. Okay, gotcha. So... As Emily and I have traveled the world, and obviously you've traveled the world more than she and I put together, one of the things we've noticed is that masculinity and femininity, and indeed this dance of sexual attraction, as it were, because it's established on this show, we talk about masculinity and femininity in terms of what creates sexual attraction, the catalyst for sexual attraction. It seems like it's a universal language all over the world. Women tend to be female. They tend to wear the pretty dresses and paint their nails and be about adornment and softness and fun and joy and bringing the party and comfort. And men tend to be the providers, the protectors, the heroes, as you so profoundly mentioned, sometimes comparatively speaking to women more so in some cultures than others, of course. Um, you could also argue that men have been put into a much more feminine role in the countries where feminism has really taken root over the last several decades, Canada, UK, North America, Western Europe, etc. <laughs> well, well, this is where we can have a bit of a discussion, because sure. if you look at Hofstadter's results, this is not exactly what he's claiming, you know. <laughs> Do tell. Say more. I'd love to hear it. Well, you know, I was reviewing his list, uh, you know, because uh, I haven't taught this for a while. So I wanted to refresh my memory. And and I was quite shocked at, you know, when I noticed which countries are considered masculine and which ones are considered feminine. So, for example, um, the United States is quite masculine, according to Hofstede. It scores a 62, I think, out of 100. I mean, it's not up there in the 90s, but it's not down in the 20s either. So with a score of 62, it means that, at least according to Hofstede, uh, the man is still very much a man in the States. He's the one who will be f the fighter, the competitor, you know, and the woman is still a woman. You know, and I think uh, this is something that feminists would have a field day about. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing. And then the country which is most masculine, according to Hofstede, is Japan. Uh, it scores a 95. So I think if you really know Japan, then this is not a big surprise. You know, at the beginning, everyone in Japan seems very friendly, uh, meek, if you want, very polite, uh, whether they're a man or a woman. But I think once you know Japanese culture a bit more, this is true. You know, it's a very competitive culture where you are kind of driven to succeed. And it's traditionally always the men who have been in these positions, you know, of uh, uh, in whether it's in the family or in corporations. So that makes quite a lot of sense. Um, the countries that are feminine are a bit more predictable not always, but, you know, you have the Scandinavian countries, which for Hofstede are the most feminine. Uh, so this would mean that their gender roles, it, it's not that the men are women. Let, let's be very clear about that. It's just that the men are socialized, I guess, to be more cooperative, uh, to, to share in uh, women's tasks more. Uh, and to ultimately believe in cooperation rather than competition. This might be uh, why we see so many heads of state 
in Scandinavian countries, which are women, you know, it's not considered a big thing at all. Well, I think this conversation at large is fascinating in that it challenges our sensibilities and indeed our stereotypes about what countries are like and men and women inside those respective countries. You know, you're talking about Japan being one of the most masculine countries. And of course, we're 45 years removed from this gentleman's work as you're presenting it. But that really is immaterial to me because I happen to believe that things don't really change as much as we're led to believe by the media. Case in point, you think of Japan nowadays and you think of all the otaku culture guys in the Akihabara district, you know, who are computer geeks and have to go to maid restaurants to get some female attention because they're such neuter, dorky guys. But that's <laughs> yeah. certainly not the fine tradition of the shogun and the masculine image that is so deeply rooted in Japanese history. And indeed, you also mentioned the United States of America. I would absolutely agree that the image of a feminized man and a militant feminist woman is not at all what you'll experience as you drive around the interstate highways and byways of America and meet real people in real places. Men are still men here. I mean, if you come to Texas and go out in the oil fields, full-size pickup trucks are following each other down the road, and there's not a wimpy dude behind the wheel of any of them. And meanwhile, there's lots of women getting their nails done and getting a big hairdo and doing these very well, female I agree. things. I agree completely. You know, yeah. I've traveled a lot in these Midwestern states, because to be very honest with you, those are the interesting ones for me as a sociologist. You know, I really, really like going into diners in, in little towns. You know, you, you might call me a bit quirky, but but I really find that interesting. And And also because English is my first language and English is the language they speak. And yet, Somehow I feel we're so very different, but I agree with you completely in, in that sense, that part of the States is entirely masculine. And I think gender roles are still very clear and very rigid, even, I would say. So, yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise then that the United States is considered masculine. Well, you also have the tremendous, overwhelming influence of Hollywood over the years that cannot be underestimated. I mean, you know, you have John Wayne's America and you have Audrey Hepburn's America. And I think most of the world views the United States through that lens. Um, you know, so again, our sensibilities, our ideas and stereotypes about the way things are in a certain culture may be very media driven or even literature or entertainment driven and then you get down into the trenches and you meet people and you realize the way things truly are across the board in that culture you mentioned scandinavia man i think of scandinavia i think of vikings and guys who are really tough masculine macho dudes but you know the modern day reality of how culture has progressed over there is very different than a bunch of guys wearing helmets with horns on them <laughs> yeah well obviously that's part of history well again this doesn't mean that the men in Scandinavia are kind of feminized. I mean, I'm sure they still are very much men in, in the sense of, you know, uh, they probably take the initiative in dating, uh, I would assume. I don't know. But, you know, and, and I guess there's still social norms as to what a man should do and what a woman should do. But it just means that probably the men are less um, less likely to have an argument with a woman about who's going to do what in the home. 
you know, that, that might be a good example. You know, there it's more likely to be, okay, so today I'll do this. Tomorrow you're going to vacuum the floors, you know, and the man will be like, fine, I'll do that. I'll do that. You know, and there won't be an issue about it. It'll be considered entirely acceptable for, for a man to be doing all sorts of tasks. Whereas in the very masculine cultures, let's say in Japan, it might be very unusual to see a man doing the housework. Let's put it that way. Um, one of the things I've noticed, and I love your comment on this, is it seems the more developed the country, the more the gender roles and the expectations about masculinity and femininity, at least from a historical perspective, are blurred. Like, you know, you go to a country where they have very little media. I'm thinking like a place like, I don't know, rural Tanzania, where if you take a video of the children and show it to them, they've never seen themselves on video before. I mean, they are quite literally living in their culture without a whole lot of outside influence. There, I've noticed the women tend to be very feminine and very much in that role, whereas the men are quite literally the warriors and the protectors. And very much in that masculine role. It's when you get into a country where we're quote unquote modern, <laughs> right? Or postmodern, I guess, as it were. And we have the extreme prevalence of technology and knowledge and information where genders get bent and people start thinking, okay, because I'm a man, I need to be more of a woman. And because I'm a woman, I need, I, I need to be more of a man, et cetera. Have you noticed that similar pattern? And, and what do you make of that? Well, again, if we use Hofstede as example, this is only partially true. So okay. if we look at Europe, for him, well, in Europe, the most masculine country is Hungary, and the second most masculine is Austria. Now, Austria is quite developed now. It's true, again, that maybe things have changed in Austria over the years, but maybe they haven't. And again, I think it might have a lot to do with religion or with, with being inherently conservative. So Austria, despite the fact that it's a very developed country, is still very deeply rooted in, in Catholicism. And I would say that there, there might be a very clear gender division, you know, so, um, you know, you need to be a man uh, or a woman accordingly. Uh, I think in, in Protestant countries, uh, we might see a bigger blurring uh, because of that, you know, because there. It's all about work and creating, becoming more uh, focused on the family and work, and everyone needs to contribute to this. So if everyone needs to contribute, it means that the men and the women need to go together in this. Now, of course, there's countries where religion now doesn't even play much of a role. So this may not be important there. Um, I certainly think that if you look at Hofstede's division, a lot of the initial reactions will be, this doesn't make sense. Like Chile is quite feminine. Um, and Argentina is masculine and their neighbors, you know, so, you know, when you, when you travel there, you think, ah, these places are more or less the same, but there you go, you know, and Germany is actually quite masculine and the Netherlands is extremely feminine. And yet you think, oh, the Dutch and the Germans, you know, their languages are not all that different. And, and, you know, in terms of architecture, they're more or less similar, you know, and yet you have big cultural differences and big differences in terms of what a man or a woman might uh, be appropriate to do. So there you go. Well, you know, as you're talking about different countries, what comes to mind for me is how when you're actually on the ground and you experience these countries and you're immersed in them, 
you do get a very visceral sense of whether you're in a masculine or a feminine place. You mentioned Germany. Germany to me has always seemed very masculine. It's all about beer oh, yeah. and going fast and being on time and stainless steel and carbon fiber and business and, you know, getting things done right. Meanwhile, you go to a place like France and I would imagine if I were to guess, if I were a betting man, France would be a feminine country. But of course, I don't know what that means sociologically. It's, it's more feminine than Germany, right. uh, I think, on the on the ranking. Italy is very masculine. And I mean, that's a no brainer. Makes you sense, know, yes. Italy, <laughs> you know, a man, I mean, it's all about macho there, isn't it? And and I think sure. there it really is clear. You know, the woman still expected to cook there and, and, and you know, raise the children. Well, they do the a man. damn good job at cooking. <laughs> In Italy, <laughs> yeah, and in you France, know, I might. But add. In, in Italy, if you know, if a married man doesn't have a girlfriend, it's almost considered like he's doing something wrong. I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but maybe not that much. You know, so well, that's a little bit on the toxic masculinity side, which I'm not going to traipse into because we've done that a lot on this show lately. Um, but anyway, like for example, France architecture, pretty things, softness, music, colorful, fashionable. Things like that you think of when you go to Paris. London seems more of a masculine place. You know, you got the red yes. buses and, you know, you got the tall spires. But remember, Scott, that countries are not only their capitals or of their course. major cities. Point this well is, taken. Uh, you know, yes. I think one of the big, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but I mean, people often think of a country, even when I'm researching countries, you know, I put something like, you know, I'm looking at cathedrals in France and all I get in the search engine is Paris. And I'm like, no, I don't want Paris. I want France, you know, because because it's the periphery that makes a country, not the capital uh, or the biggest city, because in the States, the biggest cities are not the capital, but you know, I think the biggest cities are always going to be outliers, both culturally and, and in everything. You know, they tend to be places where all sorts of people who might be outcasts kind of converge. And so the, their culture might be very particular to that city. But then if you go to the periphery, to smaller towns, and obviously to the countryside, that's when you can really tell the place, I, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I think that's no. very fair. To be truthful, I'm going after the low-hanging fruit by talking about Paris and London, of <laughs> course. Uh, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, the more you drive out into the countryside, the more you're going to get an idea of how this country really ticks. You mentioned Argentina being masculine. I mean, if you leave Buenos and you go down to, say, San Antonio de Arico, which is where the gauchos are riding their well, horses I mean, and that's cowboy territory yeah, you know? and you know it's yeah. meat and it's wine and it's you know standard of living that has a certain toughness attached to it and you value that um you start seeing that masculinity i would argue there that even i mean the women need to join in the toughness you know living in such communities is not easy you know it's isolated uh, they need to tend the animals and it's tough. You know, they work hard. I would say that those uh, in those situations, even the women might have to become more like men, you know, more argumentative, tough, you know, because they, they need to survive. Sure. Not unlike the Old West, for example, in the United States, where women had to be just as tough as the guys, you know. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, obviously we're in a more modern state in most of Argentina, but you know, Argentina is also the land of the tango, which is a very sexually polarized dance. You know, there's lots of masculinity. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to say that a country is either masculine or feminine is not to say that they value one of those sexual polarities over the other. I mean, in certain ways, the more masculine a country may seem or in reality be based on what Hofstede would postulate, the more they may value femininity, right? It isn't a matter of value. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I would argue that the country doesn't know if it's masculine or feminine. You know, it is what it is. And culture develops and, and it takes over the country. And it's not like people are conscious of this. They just live in it. I would say femininity may be cherished even more in masculine countries. And certainly they don't know about off status. So, you know, but it's the result of that that you can then look at and think, yes, you know, in that country, the feminine traits or the feminine aspects are really valued more. But, you know, the question I think everyone should be asking is, in which countries do people really try to reach consensus or agreement? And in which cultures is it more about winning and, and being, you know, beating the other? And I think there is where you will find masculinity versus femininity in action, you know. Another thing you mentioned that I don't want to gloss over is the idea of how major religions of the world flavor the result in terms of whether a particular place is masculine or feminine. Let's talk about some of those. How do you think Christianity, Islam, perhaps Buddhism or Hinduism impact whether a culture is masculine or feminine? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if we look at Buddhism and, you know, we take Japan again as an example, for most of us, Buddhism is this kind of idea of tranquility where every, everything is beautiful and it's all about inner peace and, and, you know, kind of getting to know yourself and never really fighting or whatever. And then you get Japan being the most masculine country of them all. So there, there's a bit of a distinction. You know, it's like, how does the one fit into the other? Uh, maybe it's that the country has gone away from its roots in terms of religion. Uh, maybe it's that the interpretation of religion is different. Christianity, I think, is rather varied, but I would argue that most strains of Christianity actually tend to reward masculine cultures uh, more. So definitely in the Orthodox, and I would say to a great extent in the Catholic countries, you're talking macho kind of, you know, where the man is in charge. As I already said, less in Protestant countries. Now in Islam, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Islam, and even Hofstadter would, would find that Islamic countries are often more feminine than one would think. And I think this is because in terms of education, women have a very big role there, you know, so they may be making a lot of decisions like what schools the children will go to, things like that. So they do play a very important role. It's not that they are sidelined. I think they make a lot of decisions within the family, whereas in, let's say, orthodox cultures, I'd say the men make most decisions, even in the family. I do think that religion does play a role in culture and in masculine versus feminine, but not 100% always. And yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly that it most certainly varies across different sects and in different cultural representations of Christianity. Uh, for example, I mean, we had a guest on this show quite a while back 
who was talking at length about why men hate going to church nowadays. <laughs> and he said, because Christianity has been feminized. It's a bunch of flowers on the altar and having, you know, tea and crumpets after services and falling in love with Jesus, which sounds pretty gay to most men. And um, I think he's on to something there. But of course, if you go back to the, you know, not to be romanticized era, of course, of say the Crusades and when men were fighting for Christianity or in a place where Christianity is indeed illegal and you could lose your life for worshiping it, it tends to be a more masculine endeavor. And of course, you mentioned Islam. I think Islam is represented as very patriarchal and perhaps oppressive to women in the West by non-Islamic cultures. Whereas when you actually set foot into a primarily Muslim country in that environment, you'll realize they're all about hospitality to almost an extreme, which is indeed very feminine. Also, women are very much revered and protected. I mean, that's really what's behind wearing hijab and burqas is protecting women from the wandering eyes of these, you know, gnarly guys. And, and, you know, they're very pro child and children are celebrated. You see that in countries like Turkey and in the Emirates very, very much. And you have your pink taxi cabs where women can feel safe and et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a different viewpoint on it. Certainly India, where you have a lot of Hindu folks, I would think of Hinduism as being very colorful and indeed very much acknowledging sexual polarity. I mean, you have stories of Krishna being a ladies' man and this, that, and the other. And I would almost characterize Hinduism as, as more feminine because it talks about nurturing and life and peace and things like that. But again, you go to a different part of the world where it's slightly different, and you might see a completely different representation. I think that's fascinating how that all fits together. Well, yes, you know, I, I certainly think these are not simple issues. Uh, they're very dynamic. The world is definitely changing. I do think we all have a lot of misconceptions about other countries, even those we think are culturally close to us. Uh, you really have to know a country well to spend a lot of time there in order to understand it. And in terms of masculinity and femininity, this is not something which is always immediately obvious. You need to get into the homes uh, and see what is happening there. And I think that's when you can tell, uh, you know, obviously you need to get into a quote unquote representative home, you know, one home may be an outlier, but you know, if you experience, as you said, hospitality, and if you get to know enough locals, then you can probably come up with a, uh, a better understanding of whether a culture is or isn't masculine. Wonderful. And you know, you guys listening, you're hearing perhaps the most informed opinion on this matter possible. As we've already said, Harry's been everywhere and seen it all in terms of what he's talking well, about. <laughs> you're flattering me a bit. I mean, I'm a human being like everyone else. You know, I uh, you bet. I have my prejudices and I, I try to dispel them by traveling. I may be very wrong. Uh, it, it's normal. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect. Uh, I have seen very many places. But then again, Hofstadter's results still surprise me. So there you go. You know, uh, that means it's still... It's not enough to travel. You need to spend your whole life 
in a place to understand it. Let's put yeah, it that I mean, way. I mean, everyone I've ever talked to who's from India or even in India says they still don't understand the place and they live there. <laughs> well, life. India is many countries in one. You know, oh, it's yeah. really much more so than Japan or even China, where you can say a big part is, I wouldn't say the same, but there's more similarities. But in India, you know, it's like a hodgepodge of completely different things. So really, I think, you know, there it, it would take a long time to understand it. Yeah. All that's long for. I really appreciate how you're over yourself. And there's a certain humility about you, despite your almost overwhelming amount of life experience that so few will ever get to enjoy for themselves. So I really appreciate that about you, Harry. Um, well, I think humility is what you learn from traveling because you see so many situations which are completely different to what you know. And that's when you realize how small you really are in relation to the whole world. So, I mean, mm. I think it, it makes complete sense that advanced travelers would, would develop this humility. I agree with that. I echo that. I mean, I'm such a different guy with such a different understanding of my own biases and my own ignorance, frankly, as I've traveled the world, travel does bring a certain level of humility if you're open to it bringing you that. And I'm certainly thrilled that you've become that guy. And it's a pleasure to meet you, man. I've wanted to meet you for a long time, you know, having seen your name at the top of the list on your own website over there at Nomad Mania. And uh, the places you've been in the articles I've read about your travels are just wonderful. What are these guys going to find when they go to Nomad Mania? And by the way, gentlemen, of course, I'll set you up a special URL, uh, as always, www.mountaintoppodcast.com, front slash uh, Nomad, N-O-M-A-D. And uh, Harry, when those guys go to your amazing web universe over there at Nomad Mania, what are they going to encounter? Well, apart from many people from all over the globe uh, with their profiles and their bios and their filled maps, uh, I think most people will discover places they've never even heard of. We divide the world into 1,281 regions. Uh, and I would argue that in many cases, uh, an average person or even a well-traveled person will not have heard all, of all of them. So it gives you ideas for where to go. Each region has an extensive list of things to see and do. Everything from caves to aquariums to theme parks to dark tourism, you know. So um, there's something there for everyone, no matter what their interest is. Uh, so I think it's it's all about kind of showing the world for what it really is with all its complexity. Uh, it's not just saying Paris. It's saying all of France. It's not just saying Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. It's saying Mongolia has five regions and you should go and explore them all because that's how you're really going to get to know Mongolia. So, you know, I think that's the, the benefit. And of course, uh, we do have social meetings uh, we're developing community. So people who join end up meeting others. And I think this is the great benefit, uh, getting people together to open their mind and understand the world in a better way. Now, Mongolia, that has got to be a masculine country. <laughs> I don't well, see any, any way out of that one, man. Mongolia <laughs> is one of the most manly places I've ever been. I, I would suppose so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I would really agree that. <laughs> Man, yeah. the guy who was our guide herding yaks, you know, around the steps in Terrellage National Park, his name was yeah, Pooja, yeah. and he was probably about five feet tall. <laughs> and he was one of the top five badasses I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> no doubt. I want to be like that guy. 
You know, I have a wristband on that says WWPD. What would Puja do? Yeah, absolutely. That guy was amazing. Mongolia has the smallest population density of any country in the world, which basically means there's nothing there, you know, just endless desert or steppe and very few people. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy was like, you know, carving up meat for dinner with one hand and giving birth to a baby foal with the other at the same time. It was just amazing. <laughs> just amazing <Okay>. badassery. <laughs> so, anyway. Very <laughs> That's right. No doubt, man. So um, I can vouch for Nomad Mania. I love that site. I absolutely see it as the number one destination on earth in terms of a, a website where if you love travel and you love culture and you just want to have fun with your own travels, that's the place to go. I've been a Traveler's Century Club member and the dimension that you provided to that style of experience of hanging out with other very avid world travelers and sharing experience. I really think you, I mean, well, it isn't even conjecture. It's a fact. You've taken it to just a whole nother level, as they say here in Texas. It's almost addictive to fill out your various lists and see them add more dimensions to them. I always check to see if you've added more lists for me to fill out every time I go to <laughs> Nomad Mania so I can increase my number. It's just big fun and interacting with everybody else. So yeah, guys, go to www.mountaintoppodcast.com front slash Nomad, N-O-M-A-D, and learn more about Harry, Mitsidis, and uh, Nomad Mania. Big fun. Hey, you know what, Harry? This has been a great show because the vibe is very different than most of these episodes, and I think the guys will appreciate the change of pace. And it's been uh, the kind of show where even though we couldn't begin to cover every nuance of what perhaps we could have talked about, it certainly planted a lot of seeds in our minds to start thinking, hey, you know, how does that affect masculinity and femininity all over the world? And, and how does that all happen? And anytime we challenge our mindset and our stereotypes about things, I think is always, always valuable. So thank you so much for joining us for this show. It's been a real pleasure being with you. Thank you, Scott. And guys, if you haven't yet visited www.mountaintoppodcast.com, go ahead and sign up for the daily newsletter where uh, we won't necessarily be talking about Mongolia and Japan and Argentina so much, but rather how you can get better with women, how you can be the man who lives the life of adventure that you want, um, get ahead in your job and your business. And uh, all those things are covered for you when you get in on my daily newsletter. And also, gentlemen, you're going to find that I'm the guy you think I'm going to be when you talk to me on the phone. Go ahead and click that button on the website that gets you 25 minutes with me for free. It won't cost you a dime. We can talk about where you are right now, where you're going. And if there's a coaching program that would be a good fit for you, we can talk about that too. It's all there for you at www.mountaintoppodcast.com. Until I talk to you guys again real soon on the next episode, this is Scott McKay from San Antonio, Texas, X and Y Communications. Be good out there. Mountaintop Podcast is produced by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to visit www.mountaintoppodcast.com for show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the free X and Y Communications newsletter for men. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for the Mountaintop Podcast.